John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 1387.DE0228, certificate number 16697, vending machine. this bore explaining to our future listeners well i'm glad you used the word bore right out of the top so if we're bored <laughs> no you foreshadowed it i thought this bore explaining and it will explain boring <laughs> now they're wandering through are you the... bore explaining <laughs> they're wandering through the rubble right they're gonna see millions of vending machines sure coke if, machines if they have access to the strata of our yes yeah, snacks of course they will all have been eluded in the first few hours of the cataclysm you know what you don't see anymore is cigarette machines. I don't. Right. I don't want to foreshadow that. But when I was a kid, there were cigarette machines everywhere. I think that's probably what led to a huge part of the vending machine boom. That's something you kind of need now, no matter where you are, train platform, right, hallway at work. But the interesting thing to me about vending machines is they predate. You know, you might imagine, oh, sure, the first cigarette machines probably like 1902 or chewing gum machines. Exactly. Yeah. The first American vending machines were, in fact, chewing gum machines. Oh. But that was not the first device ever invented where you would put a coin in a slot. That just goes to show how item. old I am that I, that I, <laughs> <laughs> that I remember <laughs> chewing gum machines. <laughs> I just remember you running through the Bowery, pushing a hoop on a yeah. stick. I would, I would pull my penny-farthing bike over and get some licorice-flavored gum. <laughs> well, you know, uh, my childhood is full of, you know, the only vending machine of my childhood is a gum machine too, although it's a gumball machine. Oh, sure. And you, when you and I were kids, that is what you would, you would probably get a penny from your mom at the supermarket yeah. and you would get to run up and, and put a penny in a machine that would just spit out a little gumball. Yeah, that was, a, that was pretty exciting as a kid. How did that get a penny? How did that exist? I mean, today they sell those gumball machines. They've made the gumballs bigger, but the gum is now, it's not a, a penny, it's 50 cents or something. Yeah, right. And what do you think inflation has been like one, let's say what one cent in 1978 I actually had a gumball machine at a point when they were being decommissioned from everywhere. I found one just sort of, I don't even remember how somebody gave me an old gumball machine. I had it in my house for a long time. As, this is as an adult. As a grown up, yeah. Quasi adult. And it was, I think, I think it was uh, configured to take nickels. How do you restock it? 
there's, that not a guy, was, there's not a guy driving around on a route to your house with gumballs every week. I this was the problem. Not only could we not restock it, but we could not get the money out of it <laughs> because it was built to keep you from being able to get the money. So once it was out, I think you could lift the, you could unscrew a thing and lift the glass off and for maintenance. Right. But eventually it just became a thing that sat in the corner. Security was one of the main technological hurdles in the invention of the vending machine, as we will see. Because the whole thing doesn't work as a distribution network if anybody can either get out the cookies or the bills or both. Well, sure. I'm beginning to think now at, at the mention of this, right? Newspaper machines were everywhere and were like a prime way newspapers were distributed. And it must have seemed like the future. We're getting automated buying and selling everywhere. This is what uh, our our space cities are going to look like. And then it kind of all went away. Yeah. Nobody bought newspapers. Nobody bought cigarettes. I just looked it up and the value of a penny in, you know, 40 years ago from where we speak, maybe the time when you and I were getting Safeway gumballs. Right. Uh, would have been only four cents in today's money. Oh, so it's a total ripoff to rip pay off. a quarter for a piece of gum. Yes, it should be a four penny machine now, but, yeah. but no, that's, that's not what happened. I guess at the level of a penny, I mean, that's um, what they realized. Unless it's a Bitcoin that increased 17,000%. Uh, for the most part, a penny is, yeah, it's already quadrupled in value, but it's still a penny. I really do regret by spending all my Bitcoin on gumballs. Like, yeah, remember? I, I would have millions today, but I spent it all on six gumballs. Remember that time you spent 10,000 Bitcoin on two pizzas? <laughs> it, it makes me wonder how that business model ever made sense. You know, they've got this uh, machines they have to create and maintain and stock, and they're making one penny per purchase. Like how did that business model ever make sense? I'm I'm not 100% sure that the inflation there is whether or not that is actually a, a sensible way of describing how much a penny was worth. I'm using the consumer price index, John. I ha I have real numbers for you here. But I do feel like there were a lot of places where you could employ a penny, not just a gumball machine, but you know, there were things for sale for a penny. And now we it doesn't even make sense to there's a whole movement to eliminate the penny entirely because it's just a useless denomination. Which totally makes sense, right? I would I would get rid of the penny. Well, yeah. Well, would I, you get rid of the penny? What I would get rid of is people that work at cash registers that give you four pennies in change. Places like, that don't have a take a penny, leave a penny jar should be shut down. Yeah, or places that price things at four ninety nine. It's just like stop, just stop, just stop doing it. I don't want to eliminate the, well, I guess at that point you eliminate the penny if yeah, everything just, is round Just numbers. round everything to the nearest yeah. five, I guess. Didn't Canada do it? Or, or the EU? Somebody. Somebody who's ahead of us, which would be any nation on earth, essentially. <laughs> or I guess devalue the currency so that pennies make sense again. <laughs> just take a zero off of everything. Isn't that what like Zimbabwe or Argentina would do? Uh, right. Or, or Turkey. I mean, the last time I went to Turkey, which admittedly was a while back, but their, the denominations of their currency were like 1 million, 10 million. This probably uh, sounds insane to our listeners that we carry little pieces of metal around in our pocket if we're hungry or in need of gum. Well, particularly since all of the, the core metals in American currency have been replaced with zinc. <laughs> right. But the thing is, in the future, zinc will be the most, you know, the most widely prized metal because it's what they eat. And also they're going to see everybody making their, <laughs> you know, you know how we love gold because past civilizations made all these things out of gold. They're going to see us making all these coins out of zinc and think, zinc, zinc. that's what the before people <laughs> loved. <laughs> the only reason we use zinc, of course, is if you actually made a penny out of copper today, it would be worth like six cents. Right, or, something. or more would, than that almost. It, it would be... Uh, in copper. In fact, I believe even with the 90% zinc or whatever, I believe a penny 
today is worth more in metal than it is in currency. Is that true? Well, it costs more to manufacture right. than a penny. It's like 1.6 cents. Yeah. Does that mean I can melt it down into 1.6 cents worth of zinc? Probably no, not. I don't think, I think it's, I think it, the cost of manufacture is, is included. So to run penny making machines adds all this cost that isn't actually in the value of the metal. I know that to flatten a penny, so you get a picture of a jaguar or a penguin or something on it, that costs 51 cents. So that's sure. that's very expensive. <laughs> uh, yeah, you spend a lot of time at World's Fairs because you're a pretty wholesome guy. You're just or just going from fair just to travel fair. the world. seems like there's usually one in Montreal or yep. Calgary, some Canadian city. Yep. Just love it. Love you're it. up there like, do you guys have funnel cake? Can I flatten some toonies? Yeah. That's my, my catchphrase. But I do feel like probably in the, in the future, uh, galvanization will be a very important part of how they construct their their little metal shelters. Walk me through your thought process here. <laughs> Pretend I know what galvanization is and explain what you're talking about, John. Uh, galvanization is a process that employs zinc. Um, it makes metal like harder, right? It makes uh, metal more durable. Galvanizing is like a, it's a coating of zinc over the top of steel or iron, and it, it protects against rust. That's where we get our expression, like to, to galvanize someone to do something. That means to coat them with zinc. Right. Coat know? them with zinc and get them out there. <laughs> I'm really galvanized to, <laughs> to help out now. I'm galvanized to listen yeah. to the omnibus. Because and you I'm... have that weird, shiny kind of zinc coating that you see on corrugated metal that, you know, make up the rooftops of like Johannesburg or Rio. Or Rio, Yeah. Yeah. Those people are, are galvanized. The first vending machine was not cigarettes. It was not gum. In fact, it's... Condoms. <laughs> it was condoms. <laughs> it was 2,000 years old. It was ancient what? Greece. Or, or to our listeners, probably over 3,000 years ago. What? The ancient inventor, Her Heron? He's Heron or Hero. Like, if your name is Hero, why would you be like, eh, I'd rather be named <laughs> after a big bird, actually. Uh, maybe Hero he, ain't nothing but a sandwich. You know, the heron is a graceful bird. It's a beautiful bird, but Hero is a pretty great name, I yeah. guess. If you're like a Belgian shepherd. There's, <laughs> there's a character in Shakespeare named Hero, and it's a woman, actually. It's the, mm -hmm. it's the young female romantic lead in Much Ado About Nothing. So maybe Hero is a girl's name. Maybe this was like naming your, your baby Leslie or something, and then he really wanted to be... Something more masculine, so he changed it to heron. Well, Greek is a genderized language, so uh, maybe it's heron or hero, but it wouldn't be, it, hero couldn't be a, a female name. Are you saying Shakespeare just got it wrong? But Hera was a name already taken. Hera, <laughs> Hera already had a connotation. Maybe Shakespeare's hero is named for the sandwich instead of for the, oh. the Greek uh, ideal. Maybe she was a Belgian shepherd. <laughs> Shepherdess. A winsome, a winsome Belgian shepherdess. I can see your mind starting to wander already. Hmm. Hero or Heron, it doesn't matter which, uh, is today mostly best known. He's known to school children because he came up with a novel way to compute the area of a triangle that kids still learn today. Hero's formula for computing the area of a triangle. This is known to school children, you're saying? <laughs> Every, everyone, everyone, as you well know, John, uh -huh. why don't you recite for the future <laughs> listeners your hero's formula for the air eternal? They may not have it. <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a I, you know, I'm going to have to go back to my third grade geometry textbook. It's just a way to do it where you don't have to know the height of the triangle. You can just use the perimeter. You just, oh, sure. If, if you know the side lengths, you can get the, the semi-perimeter. And you can compute the area of a triangle. Sure, but I don't. But I don't recall that being called Her Hero's theorem. So yeah, I remember the. I remember the math. Maybe they called it Heron's formula Heron's where, theorem, where, yeah. where in Alaska. <laughs> uh, but in fact, he did much more than that. He could accurately be called the West's first 
a physicist or oh. or engineer even mm -hmm. because uh, he's one of the first Greek thinkers to take science out of the realm of the hypothetical, you know, mathematical exercises and theory and actually perform practical experiments and build practical physical inventions. Like he was a maker. Like, was he a Leonardo da Vinci kind of person where he was building helicopters? I feel stuff? like da Vinci was just drawing his and then being like, yeah, maybe a helicopter would work like this. Like, you know, he's just basically some, he's a fantasy artist. He's, he's a doodler. He's Frank Frazetta, <laughs> you know? He's drawing barbarian women on his trapper keeper. Did he ever build any of that stuff? I don't even know. A barbarian woman on like a dinosaur lizard uh, uh, with a saddle on its back. Exactly. Yeah. But there's, I think there's pretty good evidence that Hero actually built his stuff. And it's all this crazy Rube Goldberg kind of stuff. You know, the kind of thing that a crazy movie inventor would do so that when he wakes up, you know, his bed slides him out of bed and into his shoes and then the bacon's already frying, you know? Oh, like, I had one of those when I was a kid. I had a whole apparatus. Wait, you actually built something in your room to... Yeah, so that I could lay in bed and I had I had strings running up into eye hooks and running across the ceiling of my room and down. Wait, to the light switch? My son did that. To the light switch. And, you know, at the time, in order to turn the television on, you had to actually pull right. the knob out, click... And I had it arranged so that it went around a pulley and, and turned on my TV. Because that particular summer, which would have been the summer between seventh and eighth grade, I was a latchkey kid, right? So I could stay home alone, mm -hmm. but I didn't, I was too old for a summer program, but too young for a job. So and daytime TV, yeah, baby. Too old, for a too old for a babysitter. So I would, you know, I'd watch like Alice and One Day at a Time. And to stay in bed was my goal. Now, this story has very little to do with vending machines, but it is the kind of added value that will really help our future listeners understand why the human race went extinct. Yeah. Well, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> why, 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 how my sedentary life began. Couldn't get out of bed to turn a knob <laughs> to Channel 8 after, after Alice. Well, but I was using, you know, I had learned about pulleys in seventh grade, and I wanted to really, like, utilize that technology. That's what they, that's what they send you to school. Hero also loved pulleys. Uh, one of his most famous, or one of his most ahead of its time inventions was an early robot that ran only on gravity. It was a pretty minimal robot, but what it was, was it was just a, essentially a cart. You know, it was, it was an axle with string wound around the axle, going back and forth from the left wheel to the right wheel, and various pegs on the axle that the string would wind around. And the string would be attached at the top to a pulley and a weight, and effectively, the arrangement of the string and the positioning of the pegs became a kind of programming language that when you released the weight, the robot would move forward and then the string would wind around a peg and the robot would move backwards. Hmm. The string would wind to the one wheel and the robot would turn to the left. It could turn to the right. So the guy made a robot with just a, a broomstick and some pegs. <laughs> That's amazing. It's, you know, it's a pretty minimal robot. He couldn't vacuum the floor or anything with it. And it would stop as soon as the weight reached the bottom. Right. But it was used for entertainment. Pretty you know, fun. The Greek would, yeah, the Greeks would go to a, a drama or comedy festival, and these, uh, you know, a row of these would come out before the show. It's like waiting in line at Disneyland, and the robot does some goofy thing. But these aren't exactly vending machines. No. So he had a series of many of his inventions were used for temples, uh -huh. where the Greeks would go to worship to make sacrifices to leave votive offerings to the gods. And uh, one of the things that they would do while they were there is they would make offerings of holy water. But it seems inexpensive. Sure. It's not like making an offering. It's not even buying a candle. It's just like <laughs> on your way. It's like, what do we have in the fridge? Yeah. A1. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to bring a glass of water. 
No, I'm sure they needed it for some kind of ritual ablutions. You know, right. they, they would wash themselves or whatever. And it had to be water from the temple, but they didn't want people hogging all the water. Sure. You know, because what if it has mystical powers and well, some guys just, have, they're guzzling the water all we day. We have that problem still. <laughs> what's your what's your example of this? Well, Somebody uh, at Costco just going back for all the samples? No, all of our-, our You already our, had a corn dog, dude. Our entire story of Southern California right. is just an example of somebody hoarding the holy water. That's right. So in order to keep the temple running smoothly, they wanted to make sure that each person got dispensed the exact amount of water into his cup that was needed for the ceremonies. You mm -hmm. can see where this is going. That's mm -hmm. exactly what a Coke machine does mm -hmm. or a coffee machine does. So he, uh, Heron rigged up a very simple- system whereby you would put a metallic a token, a coin, into the machine. It would roll down a, a, a path into a pan. And when it hit the pan, it would weigh down the pan so the pan would start to lean forward. As it leaned forward, that would open a valve that would dispense water out of the some kind of sluice into your cup or basin or whatever. But as, it, as the pan kept going down, eventually it would reach a point where the coin slid off into the coin receptacle. At that point, the pan boings back up and the water shuts off. Ingenious. And all you would have to do is calibrate that so you get the exact amount of holy water that a Greek worshiper would need to ask Zeus to um, make his make Karen come back or whatever, <laughs> make the crops grow or whatever. But that would have to be a very finely calibrated pan uh, because the weight of a coin even then couldn't have been that much. It had to be pretty well balanced. It's true. It would have to be very well balanced. It was probably galvanized. That probably does yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if they had that technology. <laughs> When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout and he would invent many uh, such steampunk kind of inventions for greek temples um, and was the coin actually was it a slug or was it uh, a coin that had value? Was he collecting money for this? They were actually collecting money, I, uh, I think. It was also a, a, a means of income for the priests. Well, future listeners and even contemporary listeners might not know what a slug is, but a slug is a piece of metal shaped like and, and weighed like a coin, but that's just made out of base metal that was... They were popular as a way of defeating vending machines. Have you ever cheated a vending machine, John? There was a brief moment in the late 70s when Mad Magazine published a sheet of like hilarious mad money that you could cut out of Mad and, and it was something that Mad had going for a different thing. But someone realized that that very first generation of change machines that would take dollar bills 
which was uh, came out at exactly this time, would accept mad dollars. Wow. So whatever kind of <laughs> anti-counterfeiting measures they had were so minimal that Mad Magazine joke money worked. Yeah, because it was the initial technology was super simple. And of course, in all the introduction of all those things, no one initially thinks, oh, people are going to try and hack this. And so I did use one single mad dollar in a vending machine. And I got four quarters for it. And I felt like the master criminal. <laughs> when you think about like what did Mad Magazine cost back then, though? I mean... If, if it cost more than a dollar to buy the magazine. It didn't. I think Mad was probably 75 cents at the time. But still, it was just, it was the principle of it. Uh, when I was a kid, we lived for many years in South Korea. And the Korean currency is the won. And it was one of these ones where they have more zeros than we do. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I first moved there, they had a one won coin, which was worth a seventh of a penny. Uh -huh. And it was made of aluminum. <laughs> you, could actually, you could actually blow it across a tabletop. It was so light. Was e East Germany also had aluminum coins. And I assume that's for the same reason we use zinc. It's yeah. super cheap. But the 101 coin was exactly the same size and weight as a quarter. But it was only worth, at the time I was there, between 10 and 12 cents. Mm -hmm. So you could come home and use those in parking meters or newspaper boxes. Well, and depending when we were kids, right, depending on the exchange rate, a Canadian quarter could be a real hack it, sure. could, it was only worth 18 cents at sometimes and and vending machines were then calibrated to not accept them yeah places here in the northwest would have signs saying whether or not they would accept canadian currency if it was a good deal for them sure canadian currency welcome we love our neighbors to the north right because they would make six percent profit or something slug detection is interesting because it's very sophisticated today it's not just the it has to measure the weight of course that's how early vending machines worked it would just be a pan that would measure the weight and if your thing weighed as much as a quarter, you were good. Right. But today it can see sizes, uh -huh. you know, so it can see very fine differences in size. And there's width. like, there's, yeah, width and there's electromagnets in it. So it can tell the magnetism of what you've put in there uh, how interesting. and whether or not it matches the alloy that it's expecting. So it's much harder to cheat than it used to be. There was a brief time when you could salt vending machines. Do you remember this? You would mm -hmm. like pour salt water into the bill slot and it would short circuit the inside and it would just every can of Coke would immediately come down the, sh the chute. <laughs> there have been so many ways to defeat vending machines. There was a Coke machine in the late 80s that you, if you tipped it the right way, a can of Coke would come out. But then there was a whole rash of kids getting killed because they... Trying to tip the machine. Yeah, they got crushed by the Coke machine when it fell over. Yeah, we should definitely warn people in the future. None of these, none of these tricks work anymore and you'll probably get squished. I assume uh, all the vending machines they find are already on their backs and, and looted. If you were strong, uh, you used to be able to go to a Seattle Times vending machine and grab the handle in a certain way and twist it, torque it a little bit, and the machine would pop right open. Oh, really? And I actually did when I was very poor, but still read the newspaper. I did that a couple of times. I got a free Seattle Times. I'm outing myself as a real crook here. The good thing is in the year 3000, the statute of limitations on newspaper theft yeah. has long expired. <clears throat> yeah, and so have true. you. It's not like I was stealing cold medicine. I was stealing a newspaper. I feel like with newspapers, am I wrong that the box would open and they would just trust that nobody wants more than one newspaper? Yeah, like right. you, you could take all the newspapers if you wanted. It's just like, you know, it's the same junior jumble in all of them. So why would you? In all the years, I mean, I was in the newspaper selling business for a while and I have never seen someone open a newspaper box and take more than one paper or even hold it open for the next guy. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I would do. I would loiter near the box and be like, hey, buddy. You Anybody want a paper? Getting a paper. I'll sell it to you for 15 cents. Well, the funny thing is Heron's, uh, you know, 
elaborate Rube Goldberg kind of vending machine went away over the years. You know, his writings were lost for centuries. Like so many things in the burning of the Library of Alexandria. Sure. He was from Alexandria. That was his local library. That's where he would go to read highlights for Children Magazine as a young lad, probably. There you go. That's what happened. But, uh... But for hundreds of years, all the, you know, we could have been living in this steampunk utopia where all of uh, Heron's inventions, you know, were turned into actual practical things. Sure, you could get holy water anywhere in town. He invented other things, like he, like his temples had an automatic opening door, like a supermarket, because he had a pneumatic thing that would lower a weight and the curtains would draw aside at the right time of day, and that's how people would know they could go in the temple. He, I love this guy. He really used technology to generate religious awe, right? Which was, Maybe one of the, one of the most valuable currencies in zero AD was religious awe. Sure, and uh, you know a, a well engineered axle could deliver that. He wasn't using it for efficiency or profit. Well, you know there is the magic that is a factor of sleight of hand, and then there's the big Vegas style magic trick that's often just technology, just a machine. In our time, he would have been like a Disney Imagineer, you know, making <laughs> Abe Lincoln blink slightly more. Realistically, or his cheekbones crinkle or something. He would have worked for Chuck E. Cheese. That's right. He would have worked for Chuck E. Cheese. No, he was top of his field. He could totally be a Knott's Berry Farm guy. Yeah. It, it does make Greek temples sound a bit like a, a bit like an ancient Chuck E. Cheese with the robots doing their dances and the door opening by itself and the, the slots. He well, even, we also forget a lot of that statuary was painted and a lot of those marble buildings were painted inside. Exactly. It was a gaudy time. Egypt, Greece, like all these, like, you know, the tan sandstone and the white marble we imagine today, those were brightly colored. <laughs> the, the most remarkable thing he invented was he didn't know what to do with. You know, he found out that if you put a like a brass sphere above a fire and filled it with water. Mm -hmm. um, you know, right. the, obviously the pressure would increase inside the sphere. And if you put one little pipe on the top pointing one way and a little pipe on the bottom going the other way. You could make a little You could make the thing turn. <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> but you would turn, you know. Yeah. And he didn't know what to do with it. I, you know, this may have powered the automatic doors at his temples or whatever. We don't know. But the fact is he just invented the turbine. Right. You know, thousands of years before anyone else would figure out steam power. He had it going, and he was just like, "Huh, just a little, a little goofy curiosity for the the temple to uh, Artemis or whatever." That's pretty cool. So for two thousand years, vending machine technology was effectively lost. We went into the dark ages of vending machines, and when it came back in sixteenth and seventeenth century London, in you know eating establishments and, and public houses, dining halls, it was pretty much the newspaper box model. They would sell snuff or tobacco in a little brass box, and you would put in a coin and that would unlatch the lid, but it would, you know, you could open it and just scoop out anything, you know, all the snuff or tobacco was there for you. Hmm. So it was, they were called trust boxes or honor boxes because like a newspaper, you were on your honor to take only the amount you had paid for. And that money would go to the barmaid, I think, or the owner's wife. That was kind of the tradition, but an actual well-regulated vending machine, the technology was lost for centuries because you know, Heron should have left better blueprints, I guess. Right. They All they needed was a water counter-weighted pan, and they could have resolved this. It didn't have to be called a trust box. It could have been... We don't trust you box. Yeah. It's, it's a distrust box. <laughs> distrust box. It just would have been sn holy snuff coming out of the slot instead of holy water. In the 1820s, uh, a bookseller in London named Richard Carlyle brought a vending machine into his shop which was a little more elaborate. You, it was it was more like the the snack model we see today, where you could choose choose the things. book you want, and you know put the coins in the appropriate slot, and the book would slide out. But he did not do it for ease of uh, you know for customer service or anything. 
He wanted legal plausibility. That's where he put all his controversial books. Oh. That were banned or dangerous or dirty in some way. And so how would it make a difference that, oh, because he, he wasn't selling them. I didn't sell this guy that terrible atheist Thomas Paine pamphlet. Uh-huh. He went to this machine and put in a, a shilling. Did that work for him? It did not work, actually. His stores were prosecuted. <laughs> <laughs> and he, was the, he was the first Amazon.com. Yeah, it was an early test case for whether or not you could be held liable for what your bot did, <laughs> I guess. Or, you know, hey, I lost control of my car, Your Honor. It's Honda's fault that uh, this guy's mailbox is gone. I suppose if he could build them big enough and secure enough, he could just put them in public places, deny all knowledge of them. Only empty and refill them in the middle of the night. This is not super relevant to vending machines, but that is actually a tactic used by activists in repressive countries today. Um, for example, it was it was commonly used in Serbia. All the students that were running the anti Milosevic stuff in Serbia in the nineties, they would do crazy things like that. They, they would pull up to a street corner, put up a uh, some kind of ma mannequin of some kind of painted thing of Milosevic with a bunch of baseball bats and a sign that says, "Hey, whack on Milosevic." And then they would pull away uh -huh. and people would come up and just bang Milosevic with a bat. And when the cops come, they couldn't arrest the ringleaders. Right. All they could do is arrest the fake standee. Sure. I knew a guy like that in college who never got in any trouble. He just would whisper in your ear like, hey, you know what would be really funny? Go over and set fire to the library. And he'd do it enough. Somebody would do it. And then. The twist ending is that was not an actual person. We learned at the end of the movie that was uh, your imaginary alter ego. <laughs> that was the Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah, that was Brad Pitt telling you to go <laughs> get, cut vivisect animals and stuff. I think you revealed a little too much. Uh, but when we get to the into the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, the vending machine as we know it in our era starts to take place. Uh, a man named Percival Everett gets a practical system of machines going in London that sell postcards mm -hmm. and stamps. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, the same principle. Sure, the stamp machine was a vending machine throughout my whole life. They still exist. And they were, back when there was only one kind of postage or two kinds of postage, you saw stamp machines kind of everywhere. There's, there's still automated stamp machines at post offices. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can always expect the post office to be 50 or 60 years behind the technology everywhere else. But now there are 50 products because everybody wants a book of stamps that have bunnies on them. Or Every time I get in line at the post office, I'm either behind someone who has never been in a post office, <laughs> has no idea how they work, or someone who knows way too much about the post office and is like, wait, you're out of the crested puffin? Yeah, right. I only want the crested puffin. When do you guys get the, the ivory-billed woodpecker, you know? <laughs> Where are the Harriet Tubman stamps? Why am I not just behind one person who has the right amount of post office knowledge and experience? Vending machines came to the United States in the late 1880s to sell Tutti Frutti gum mm -hmm. on New York elevated train platforms. A great flavor of gum. Gum apparently was the killer app that finally put vending machines over the top in the same way that, you know, WordStar or Lotus123 made personal <laughs> computers ago. When people found out they could get Tutti Frutti gum on a train platform, they were like, what? We need this now. And the Wrigley Company, I think, invested heavily. And soon there were hundreds of gum machines all over this great land, followed by cigarette machines and newspaper, you know, all the kinds we see today. Probably not newspapers. Everything, well, you know, there were newspaper boys. Yeah, those were still little boys, which is probably cheaper than maintaining a bunch of machines because they could keep the boys in terrible Sure, they kept squalid them. sweatshops. <laughs> they they fed them little gruel, and when they wanted some more, please, uh, they were not given more. I haven't seen the movie Newsies, but I assume they're just feeding the Newsies grubs. 
Yeah. And uh, dog food and horse meat and whatnot. It was just like the little rascals. I think it was really fun. They were making go-karts out of barrels and they had a little dog named Spot. We do romanticize child labor a lot, huh? Back in, you know, back in the early days, child labor seemed like a lot, a lot more fun than sitting around listening to some school marm. This guy's saying extra, extra. <laughs> it's adorable. I don't think that's a word, but. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. 1902 saw vending machines taken to a whole nother level in America. The first automat was opened by the Horn and Hard Art Company in Philadelphia. Have you ever been to an automat, John Roderick? I have been to an automat. Wow. Um, there were automats in Union Square in New York City until... Guess what year the last automat closed. This is, <laughs> this is a very surprising... You know, if the, if the first vending machine being in 2008, you know, 2,000 years ago blows your mind, when would you think the last automat closed? Uh, boy, I think it was 2002. You're very close, yeah. It, it was in the 90s. Was Nin it really? Up until 1991... There was one automat hanging on at 42nd and 3rd in New York, in Manhattan. 42nd and 3rd. Yeah, right. I mean, that's basically Times Square. It's a Gap Kids now, which is very sad. <laughs> but, but I I definitely got a, um, I mean, you could get all kinds of sandwiches and, and egg salad and, and whatnot out of that vending machine. Explain an automat to the future, John. What what distinguished the automat from other dining experiences? So it was a it was a wall of little doors, and you could walk along and look in the glass and see kind of what was in there. Each one had a different kind of sandwich kind of on, a, sandwich on a plate, or, right? right? A piece of pie, uh, some spaghetti, even on a little blue plate. And you'd go and feed some money into the machine and, and open the door and get your egg salad sandwich. And then it was a cafeteria. And you could watch on the other side. It was basically like a post office. The boxes were open on the other side. And people were, it was a restaurant. People were, right. were cooking the food, putting it on plates. And then just as little slots got empty, they would go fill it up again with food. Kind of like an automated sushi. You still see the sushi restaurants where the sushi comes along on a little boat. This is still the model in Japan where you, you go into a, it's funny, you go into a ramen place or whatever, and there's a machine at the door where you tell it, yeah, I want the egg, I want extra pork belly, or, you know, I don't want the garlic stuff or whatever. And you press all the buttons and it, what it spits out is a piece of paper, which you then take to a human and say, hey, I'd, I'd like, I'd like the ramen <laughs> described on this piece of paper. That must be an inventory control thing as much as anything. Well, the Japanese, one thing the West loves about Japan is how much Japan loves vending machines. Yeah. It's kind of the basis of their economy. I assume for reasons of um, maybe expensive urban real estate mm -hmm. and 
probably low crime, I guess. You know, you don't have to worry about the... Because Japan, Japan today has 5.5 million vending machines. Wow. There's a, there's a vending machine there for every 23 people. And Is it clear what the vending machines are selling? Like if you're a gaijin who is walking around Tokyo, are there just vending machines that are like impossible to know what's going to come out if you put money in it? No, they're transparent mm -hmm. in a literal sense. Uh, and we, we were hoping to see the crazy stuff, you know, because you hear that there's all kinds of outre things you can get out of a Japanese vending machine, probably up to and including panties. Right. Um, uh, at, little, the, at the risk of being gross. Little mini Cthulhu's that come out and destroy the world. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. I don't know if they're genetically engineering monsters in there. You're thinking of Pokemon. But you think... And they're not real. There are hundreds <laughs> of kinds of them. But, but you think... Real. Collect them all. But you think that it's... You could get a whole sex doll out of a vending machine, probably? You can you can get weird stuff, for yeah. sure. Um, there... Uh, you see a lot of coffee vending machines where, you know, canned coffee. Right. Um... The, finally, we saw a couple that were you would never have seen in the in the U.S. We were in a park in Tokyo once, and there was a vending machine selling cute, cute coin purses with little kitten in the shape of kitten heads. Yeah. And out of the same vending machine, pancake mix. Huh. So if you're ever just walking through the park after work and you're uh -huh. like, I need a coin purse and and I'm hungry for pancakes. You know what I'd like? A <laughs> coin purse full of pancakes. Yeah, mix. why don't they combine them? <laughs> I guess the crazy thing is once you put all the coins in to get the coin purse out, you have nothing to put in the coin purse. Oh! Total gift of the Magi. Whoa! <laughs> Total gift of the Magi experience. <laughs> I sold my combs. <laughs> I sold my coins to buy you this purse. Um, and then in a subway station, we saw another one that was crocheted hats for your pet. And there were pictures that made it clear that these were hats to put on your dog. Well, that is a thing that, that, that is an impulse buy. You're waiting for the train and you're like, oh, my little dog, she's so cold. Sure. It's the Wait. <laughs> Luckily, <laughs> I'm standing here next to this machine where a thousand yen will give me a little crocheted pet hat. There are vending machines still in popular use in Europe now, coffee vending machines, but also in Belgium, at least, for a while, there were essentially supermarkets, which were vending machines. For Belgian shepherdesses? For Belgian shepherds and shepherdesses. And their major advantage was they were open all night. Ah. And it was, a, it was an entire wall in the center of town that was stocked like a small supermarket. Cat litter and some fresh produce, kind of and anything in the middle of the night that you could think of. Like, oh, I wish I had some duct tape. Or, oh, I need borax or, you know, it was a, like a pretty wide selection. And you put your money in and a robot arm would come up, it's go like, across. It's a claw game. Grab it, is, basically grab the thing, bring it back over and drop it into a, a super wide slot. And to us, of course, the advantage was that you could buy beer all night long because there was a whole section of, you know, Tuborg or whatever, that this arm would go retrieve for you. The Borg are bringing you to Borg. Yeah. Were there laws keeping you from getting uh, alcohol? I guess in the middle of the night, nobody's open to sell you Nobody's anything. open, right. I mean, that kind of brings us to the end of vending machines, which is happening right here in Seattle, which is Amazon Go. Mm -hmm. Have you been to Amazon Go? Which is a store. You essentially step inside the vending machine. I mean, the, the automat was great. Right. But it was essentially just a cafeteria where... You never had to talk to anybody. Yeah, where the kitchen was separated from the diner by a, a row of walls, and all you needed to do was put in nickels. And they were... Uh, they were beautiful. Art they were Deco. beautiful. Yeah. They were. That's the thing we should say. You get your coffee from a dolphin head modeled on an Italian marble fountain. 
And there would be social mixing, you know, Irving Berlin and Walter Winchell love the automat, but they'd be in there with some bum using his last nickel to buy a hard roll and a sinker for his coffee, you know? And it was, there was a, a large variety of things and it was one of the last places you would go where you saw people in a kitchen wearing paper hats. <laughs> that's, that's why people were there for the, for the whole paper hat aesthetic. Crocheted pet hats were taking on everywhere else, but you could go to the automat until it became a gap kids. I love it. I never got to go. I love the idea that, you know, it's just, it looks like a morgue or something, but every drawer, instead of having dead bodies, has a chicken pot pie right. or a jello salad. Piece or of chocolate cake. Delicious. I mean, that's it, everything's got to taste better when it comes out of a little glass shelf, well, in, in and, my opinion. And you can sit there and, and because it's individual portions, you know, you just accumulate like, I'm going to go back for another, like it was kind of... Um, it made gluttony socially acceptable. And for decades, it was all nickel-based. You would go in, turn your money into nickels. You know, there'd be somebody at the door wearing these special rubber gloves that stuck to nickels that would give you, you know, the number of nickels you wanted. And then you could, it was Christmas, man. You huh. just went shopping. But in Seattle, we have possibly the end of vending machines. The first Amazon Go. Where you literally step inside the vending machine. Mm -hmm. You you are the coin. They, there's, <laughs> there's a slot at the door where you, you scan the app on your phone. Uh -huh. And at that point, there are hundreds of cameras in the ceiling that are very good at tracking you. They say they don't use facial recognition. Sure they don't. But they don't really have to. Like as long as they, it's a shell game. As long as they never lose you from the second you scan, right. they don't have to refind which, which shell you're under. You and know? so like, they're just looking to see what you take? Yeah. And they're very good at telling when an object has been removed from a shell. So hundreds of casino cameras in the ceiling are following every person around. And there's, it's very crowded. It just opened a couple of weeks ago and I went in out of curiosity. Dozens of, of people milling around. And I tried to confuse it by taking things out and putting them back. You can't confuse it. It's kind of like what you describe in Belgium where it's, you know, a kind of a convenience store set of products. Mm -hmm. There is a beer and wine section where the only human is, you know, because somebody's got to check IDs. Oh, sure. Except for that, you're just pulling out sandwiches, ready-made entrees, simple kitchen staples, corn syrup, a thing of pancake mix. Whatever. And there's some, it's not where they're just like, everybody likes egg salad. We're going to put 15 egg salads here. I guess there was, even for automats, there would have been probably a, uh, like a growing algorithm of right. how many of these do we, you know, every time we put like octopus salad out there, it doesn't sell, but we are, we're running through pot pies like they're going out of style. They kept this thing open for a year just for employees. And I assume a lot of it was data collection. So they would know at the beginning of every day, how many uh, shrimp Donberry bowls do we need? Right. And on a Friday, how many of these two person rotisserie chicken dinners do we need? And But they can't know. How would they discover all the things that they could sell that they they don't think about? Like how how would you ever know that if you put donut holes up there that you'd sell a million of them if you didn't try. Shelf space is definitely at a premium in there. Um, so I assume one of the things they did in the year when it was just Amazon nerds going in and out is they would swap stuff in and out and make sure they had the, the most efficient use of all their shelving. But, right, you know, but you know, it could be guitar strings or something weird that you wouldn't think true. of that you'd be making a mint on. There is not a lot of non-food. I can't remember what kinds of non-food I even saw. Like, did they even have like toothpaste and toothbrush drugstore hmm. kind of stuff? I, I almost think no. 38 caliber bullets. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can buy a flamethrower there. <laughs> and of course, we're speaking to people for whom Amazon ended the economy and world civilization. Right. So this is like talking about Cyberdyne systems or whoever making the first Terminator. Sure. But yeah, I was there in week one and it was pretty great. Amazon, great. Amazon owns Whole Foods now. 
So the food was good. And of course the punchline is you just take everything you want, you know, surreptitiously put it in your pockets. Like you're some kind of a Winona Ryder shoplifter. It's a very funny reference in our time. And when I say our time, I mean 11, 12 years ago, 12 years ago, (laughs) or put it in a shopping basket. And then you just walk out the door. Wow. What freedom. Isn't that great? <laughs> it's sort of you like might have, the in the most, past. It's the most mundane like social change. It's just Skynet becoming self-aware. In the past, you would have had to spend forty seconds, yeah. uh, handing a credit card to someone and saying, "Have a good one." Right. What, what an indignity. Well, and and eventually, I think Amazon's goal is that you not even have to scan your phone; that it just know where you are. Uh, it's going to know that you walked in the door because it's constantly monitoring your location. The thing in your brain says, hey, Ken, remember, yeah. don't get donut holes today. <laughs> you're, hey, Ken, you're out of guitar strings. <laughs> you've, only, you've only had 8,000 steps today. You might want to put the, the hostess fruit pie back. Well, but it's it, it does become a question of access because an automat, as you said, was very democratic. For Anybody everyone. could walk in. Anybody with a nickel. But you can't go into an Amazon Go unless you not only have a smartphone that has the app, but also presumably that you have good credit. If you're in arrears and Amazon no longer accepts your credit card, you are your SOL in terms of getting any fresh produce. Our listeners know this, but it's funny how many things in our time that we think of as utopian advances are really only utopian if you're winning the class game. Right. For everybody else, they're dystopian. I had a friend go to Sweden over Christmas, and Sweden is essentially a cashless society now, which is super great if you're tired of carrying around wads of uh, kroner or whatever they have in Sweden. Oh, wads of kroner. Was was that your band? That was an amazing first novel. I thought that was your your, uh, (laughs) band in high school. Uh, and you know, so it's great for most people that it's some super slick mm-hmm. card-based system now, and no one ever gets cash from an ATM, except what if you're some recent immigrant from Turkey or, right. you know, what if for some reason your card's not working, you know, there's, there's going to be a big chunk of the population that gets left behind by all these things. I had a stupid example of this the other day. There are several restaurants in Seattle, which, uh, have decided to be cash only just because it's expensive to take credit. Because you're charged by banks. Also, they're not paying taxes. They're, it's yeah, a, it's right. all a huge scam. So like the pho restaurants, uh, there are quite a few of them that don't take credit. And Mike's Chili is a cash-only business. Love Mike's Chili. But I changed banks, and I didn't get a ATM card. I just got a credit card. And so my credit card isn't empowered to get cash. I went to the grocery store and bought like a bunch of stuff thinking I would get like 40 bucks in cash so I could go to my pho restaurant. And the grocery store knew that my credit card wouldn't allow cash advance. And so I've been wandering around for three weeks now with no cash. And I don't even know how to get cash. I would have to go into a Wells Fargo during business hours. And I don't even know if they would let me do it. Thank you for recapping this super boring Black Mirror episode. (laughs) In which which everything's going okay for one man and then suddenly he can't get chili. I can't get pho. Where's my chili? That's a basic staple of Northwest cuisine. Well, let's apologize to the future because, you know, the human race showed such potential. Yeah. This guy just wanted to generate religious awe with his cool Swiss Family Robinson, Rube Goldberg setups. And instead, we turned it into a terrible nightmare system where we're all cogs in a machine that leave the poor behind. Well, yeah, we keep talking about how self-driving cars are going to revolutionize transportation, but not if you have bad credit. If you have bad credit, you're walking. 
It's good for bad drivers, bad for bad credit. And that concludes Vending Machines. Entry 1387.DE0228. Certificate number 16697 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, and you have good enough credit to access it, uh, but our tweets are archived at at Omnibus Project. And our individual handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Please follow us because we're hilarious. And also, follower count is basically the new form of credit. That is our currency. Yeah, we won't be able to get prime rib if we don't have over 20,000 followers. John needs chili. Please follow him. Uh, I also had an Instagram account under the same name where I post selfies. I post too many selfies for a man my age. And we're on Facebook and Instagram as well. That's right, Facebook and Instagram. We are omnipresent. Omnipresent omnibus. Don't look for omnipresent. Look for omnibus project. <laughs> you will find it easily because we're so omnipresent. Omnibus project. Uh, our address for email um, was omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Listeners, we speak to you from the distant past. We are in the rubble of your vending machines, possibly crushed under one if mm. things go badly when mm. the meteor hits. We have no idea how long we're going to survive. We hope and pray that there will be no catastrophe, that we will all live long and happy lives. But that seems increasingly unlikely. And if the worst comes soon, this recording, like every recording you hear from us, may be our final word to you. Wouldn't that be anticlimactic if our final word was vending machines? <laughs> it should have been Zyder Z. At least then it would be alphabetical. <laughs> Stop listening at Zyder Z. That's a much better ending. Yeah, although I've already started getting tweets from people in the Netherlands saying whenever we try to pronounce something in Dutch, we get it really wrong. But that's an extremely Nederlander thing to, to send somebody a message about. Is that why you've switched to Belgium? Is that why you've got all the Belgian content now? You're, you think yeah. that's a little safer? Well, because in Belgium, you can at least half the time speak French. If providence allows, and if you're not offended by our Dutch mispronunciations, John and I hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.